my favourite hymn to want to know what to play at my funeral. If I had to choose a hymn, that would be it. Mark chapter 4, verse 41. And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? These words are the response of the disciples to Jesus stilling the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but the funny thing is, is that they seemed just as frightened um, after the storm had been stilled than during the storm. The storm was obviously a very severe one, uh, and it must have been severe. The, most of the disciples were seasoned fishermen. They weren't easily scared of uh, a bit of rain and, and wind. This was a tempest, a, a deadly storm. Um, but Jesus calms the storm at their request. And it says, once the storm had been stilled, it was then that they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this? Well, it's interesting to me that they were just as afraid, afraid perhaps even more afraid, afterwards than during it. These disciples had already seen Jesus do some amazing things, don't forget. He'd healed various diseases, um, he'd cast out many devils, um, he had healed a leper already, he'd healed one sick of the palsy, he'd um, got a man with a withered hand to, to hold his hand out and restored it. Um, he'd healed plagues, it says, in, in the beginning of Mark and um, the disciples have seen unclean spirits cry out, Thou art the Son of God. They'd seen amazing things already. Um, but nothing, none of those things seemed to have quite the same effect upon them as this. They were, they feared exceedingly and said, What manner of man? Is this who are we dealing with here? And I think what is happening is that something is dawning on them that, that Jesus is no ordinary man. And they, of course, they knew that already, but I don't think they really understood who Jesus was. But this was the beginning of a dawning upon them of this man is something amazing, this man is something special. For the Jews, of course, for Hebrews, control of the weather or command of the wind and the sea was always seen as something only God could do. It was never in the Old Testament seen as the, the work of a man. Um, and these disciples knew their scriptures. They knew um, such texts as Job 38, 8-11, where it says, who shut up, or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb. And then a bit further on in verse 11, and said, hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thy proud ways be stayed. Only God could control the boundaries of the sea. They would, they would sing regularly Psalm 65 where in verse 7 it says which stilleth the noise of the seas the noise of their waves and the tumult of the people. These disciples would, would know these scriptures they would know the 107th Psalm which says he, that's God, maketh the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. Who is this man? saying. He's doing the sort of thing which only God, only Jehovah can do. They had literally seen and lived through something only the God of Israel can do. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, this morning I just want to talk about something very basic to Christianity something which has always been foundational and non-negotiable 
in Christian orthodoxy that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. But it seems in every generation it is a doctrine that is subject to attack from false teaching. Either the humanity of Jesus or the divinity of Jesus is always under attack in every generation because Satan knows that if the personal work of Christ can be undermined and confused, then Christianity itself loses its power and its message. Because Christianity is all about Christ. It's all about Christ himself. The scriptures, of course, present Jesus as fully human and fully God. Two natures, but in one person. Don't ask me to explain that, we even understand it. But that's how Jesus is presented. Not as two people, not as a schizophrenic, but as a, a, a one person, but with two natures. A real human nature and a real divine nature in one person. And that has always been a foundational teaching of Christianity. But as I say, it's always been under attack. Even in the scriptures, uh, we read it particularly in, in the epistles of John. The humanity of Jesus was attacked right from the beginning. The divinity of Jesus was pretty much uh, accepted all the way up to about 320 AD, when a, an Egyptian person called Arius um, attacked the divinity of Jesus Christ by saying that the Son of God, Jesus, did not always exist, but was made or created by God the Father, which meant that Jesus was not eternal in the same way as God the Father was eternal. Jesus was a created being. And this led to the church holding perhaps its most famous uh, council, the Council of Nicaea, which declared Arianism, as it became known, a heresy. And from that we have the Nicene Creed, which is pretty much the creed of all Christian, Orthodox Christian uh, religion. And this affirms the divinity of Christ in these ancient words, and we do well to memorise them, although I haven't memorised them enough not, not to read them out. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, note that, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Now today many cults and religions spread false teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And modern, there are modern day forms of Gnosticism which deny Christ's Humanity, that was perhaps more common in the New Testament. Or there are modern forms of Arianism uh, which deny the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Now what I'm speaking about here this morning, dear friends, is not, a, is not an academic or a theological lecture. This is very, a very practical reality. Because in this town of Tiverton, every week, every day, there are zealous and committed members of the Jehovah's Witnesses that go around teaching, positively teaching, that Jesus is not God and that he is a created being. They teach that the resurrection of Jesus was not a bodily resurrection, but that he only appeared to rise from the dead. And the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was created by Jehovah as the Archangel Michael, 
before the physical world existed. Now, of course, we believe, don't we, that Jesus created, he wasn't created as the Archangel Michael, he, that Jesus created the Archangel Michael and created all angels, created all created beings. They believe, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, that when Jesus was born on earth, he was only a human. That he was not Emmanuel, that he was not God with us, as we believe. And the Bible, of course, says that in Jesus, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness, all the pleroma in the Greek, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, all the Godhead in physical form. That's who Jesus is. And that's the answer, really, to the disciples' question. What manner of man is this? He is one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And right before their eyes, they had um, seen evidence of the fact that Jesus was one in whom, in whom God dwelt. He was God. Only God can control the wind and the waves and the storms. And this issue um, of the divinity of Christ struck home to me um, recently, last Saturday, in conversation, a number of, number of us, I think, I had conversations with some Jehovah's Witnesses, and I ended up speaking to one Jehovah's Witness last Saturday, um, and he said to me very clearly that Jesus never claimed to be God. Now that set me thinking. Obviously, I had to think on my feet, but I've been thinking since. What did Jesus really say or think about himself? And that's really what we're going to think about a bit. I mean, it's very, it can be very confusing to understand um, what the Jehovah's Witnesses are saying because they will say to you that they have faith in Jesus, that it's necessary to have faith in Jesus, and they believe in the cross, but they're wrong about the nature of Jesus. Uh, they're wrong about what manner of man he is. And because they've gone wrong on Jesus, they're wrong about their way of salvation. They may say they have faith in Jesus, but they don't see him as being sufficient for salvation. But they don't say he doesn't save. They say, what they say is that Jesus opens the door for you. He opens the door of salvation. He opens the way of salvation. But you have to work for salvation or top it up as it were, uh, by doing good works, by being involved in um, the kingdom hall and obeying the rules of the kingdom hall. And I read some of the rules of the kingdom hall this morning, I won't go through any of them, but there are absolutely scores of them, rules that you have to keep. Rules in the home, rules at work, rules in church, the way you have to dress, and all these things, what you eat, what things you're not allowed to do in hospital. Um, an enormous number of rules. You see, for the salvation, unless you get the person of Jesus right, then salvation will always be for you something which, in the main, you have to do for yourself. Jesus may show you the right way. Jesus might put you on the right track. But it's up to you to make the journey in your own strength. So is it true, I was thinking about what that man said to me, is it true that Jesus never claimed to be God? It's a very common thing that people say. To answer this question, it's necessary to look at how Jesus viewed himself, what he said about himself. Um, 
And we can only just very lightly touch on this subject today. This would take many hours of preaching to go through it properly, but just in very, very high level terms, what was the self-consciousness of Jesus? What did he think about himself? How did he view himself? Um, the first thing I want to say um, is that Jesus claimed that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament scriptures were a witness about his person and work. It says in John 5 verse 39, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Now what would you think of a religious leader who took the Bible uh, uh, and stood up and preached or had a following and said, this whole book is is written about me. I'm the, I am the subject of this book. That's what Jesus says. Um, a bit later in um, John 5 verse 46, Jesus said, For had ye believed in Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Jesus claims, in other words, a unique role in relation to the Old Testament. He's saying that he is the centre of God's unfolding plan of redemption and that the things that he's doing here upon the earth are things which have been predicted and prophesied hundreds and in some cases thousands of years before. And Jesus even went so far as to say that anyone who does not believe in the Old Testament will not be able to believe in him. John 5, 47, but if ye believe not his writings, the writings of Moses, how shall ye believe my words? He sees this connection between belief in the Old Testament and belief in him. And I'm sure it works the other way around. Those that don't believe in Jesus really don't believe in the Old Testament. Now this is unique, I say. No other Jewish teacher had ever read the Old Covenant and have the self-consciousness that the scriptures were all about him or her. Jesus said in effect, search the scriptures. If you want to know God, search the scriptures. Because in them is the true way of salvation. And if you search the scriptures, you'll find eternal life. Because these scriptures are the very ones that testify about me. And I am eternal life. To you and for you. And that's true today. I often say this. Um, don't detach the old from the new covenant. It's one book. The old covenant, the old testament speaks of Christ. You can find Christ just in the old testament. I mean you, 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 know, you need the new testament. But they didn't have the new testament when Jesus was speaking. They didn't have the old testament during the early church. They found Christ in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, search them, they speak of me, and you'll find eternal life. Jesus speaks, secondly, Jesus speaks uniquely of God as his Father. This is the way he saw himself. He saw himself as a centre of the Old Covenant, and he he, uh, he has this self-consciousness of God being his father in a unique way. He speaks of my father, doesn't he? In a way that no one in the Old Testament had ever spoken to God. He had an intimate knowledge of God the Father and he spoke and acted as if the Father had an intimate, intimate relationship with him. The first words that we ever hear Jesus say are when he was 12 years old. And they give a window into his soul. Um, after searching for Jesus for three days, thinking he was lost somewhere in the streets of Jerusalem or somewhere nearby, Mary and Joseph um, 
go on a search for the lost Jesus. And they find him. And Mary, his mother, tells him off, scolds him, when they find him, of all places, in the temple. Why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Now, the reply that Jesus gave reveals something about the way he perceived himself, I think. Um, in Luke 2, verse 49, this is the reply Jesus gives to his mother who's telling him off. It says, How is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? It's an amazing answer. You see, note the way that Jesus refers to my father. Mary refers to thy father. And I am worried about you. We thought we'd lost you. What do you think you were doing? And Jesus says, he doesn't talk about them. He talks about my father, referring to his father in heaven. He explains his behaviour and the fact that he's in the house of God with reference to his true and ultimate father. Of course, we know Jesus became obedient, gave due obedience to his earthly parents, and went with them back to Nazareth and was subject to them. But Jesus always had this sense that his central relationship was not with his earthly parents or with his brothers or with his sisters. We sometimes forget Jesus had sisters as well. But his true central relationship was with his heavenly Father. Something very similar happened a bit later on when Jesus was teaching a large crowd and um, he was with his disciples and the, the crowd were pressing around him, they were surrounding him and they didn't even have time to take a break. There was no time even for a coffee or a pick or whatever the equivalent would have been in those days. And his mothers and his brothers seek, a, seek an audience with him. They come and say, can we speak with our, with our son Jesus? But again, we get this sense from Jesus that, well, what he does is he prioritises what he's doing. He prioritises his father's business and says, those who do the will of my father in heaven are my brother and sister and mother. He doesn't, I don't know whether he exactly saw them in the end, I expect he did, but he didn't immediately stop what he was doing. He said, those who are truly my mother and my brethren, my sister, are those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And right through, Jesus addresses God as his Father and thinks of himself uniquely as the Son of God. One of, the, one of the great things about reading the Gospels, and it's really important to read and reread the Gospels, whatever reading plan you're on, make sure it gets through the Gospels plenty of times in the year. Because one of the great things about the Gospels is that you get to, um, to earwake, if you like, on conversations between Jesus and his Father. And you get this sense of... Um, a unique, exclusive, shared knowledge and intimacy between the Father and the Son. And I can only describe it as um, types of conversations that, that display a knowing, which goes far beyond any kind of knowing from education or from experience. There's a way of knowing which is just, you know, isn't it? If you have a child, um, you, just, you just know them in a way. I mean, or you'll think of your mum when you're small. You just know them. You don't have to go to school and learn about them. There's, a, there's a, an innate knowing, intimacy, 
that's just there. And that's what comes across in Christ's relationship with his Father. Um, time only allows for one example, but you can turn to it if you wish. So, this, is, this is just one conversation. I want us to uh, just, look, just look at it briefly. Matthew 11 and 25 to 27. Um, this, is, this is Jesus talking to his father. And, and then in verse 27 he makes a comment about it. He says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. And then he says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he to whom, and he to whom, so ever the Son will reveal him. Again I say this, here we see this intimacy with the Father, a kind of knowing and being known by God which can only come from a pre-existent and continuing relationship, a perpetual relationship. And then in verse 27 we have this perception of Jesus that he has a unique role in the plan of redemption. If you just stick to the original order of the Greek, it, it would say, to me, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. And the all, the all things, in verse 27, are talking about not only control of the wind and the waves, but everything associated with the salvation of poor sinners. All things are delivered to Jesus to deliver people from sin and to deliver salvation. The power and the authority to save and to redeem has been given to me, Jesus said. I am in control and success depends on me. He just sent out his disciples two by two and they'd come back and all pleased with themselves that they'd seen their demons being exercised and um, all sorts of things. But Jesus says, all, it's all, it's all, all things are given to me. It all depends on me. It all depends on the authority of my name. Because nobody knows the Son except the Father, so no one knows the Father except the Son, and whomsoever the Son chooses to reveal him. It's a very profound thing here. Jesus is saying this relationship that he has with his Father, this intimate relationship, is the foundation of the plan of salvation because it's out of this love of the Father for the Son that the Father's love arises for those whom he has chosen to redeem. It sounds a bit complicated, but we put it this way. You and I, if we're Christians, are loved, and we just sometimes forget this. We need to remember this when we, when we're, when we feel low or struggling. You and I are loved with a passion by the Father. Not because of who we are. We're loved with a passion because we are in Christ. We are loved in Christ. You know, as I say, when things get tough, remember that. God loves you because you are in Christ. Another uh, important thing to remember is in this respect of, of Christ's self-awareness of who he was, is that Jesus often spoke of his pre-existence before he came into the world. 
know, a lot of people, when they think of Jesus, they only ever think of Jesus uh, in terms of the Gospels when he was here upon the earth. But we have to remember that the second person of the Trinity, who came to be known as Jesus, pre-existed his earthly life. There was a time before he came into the world. Now, Jesus didn't believe in reincarnation, but he believed in incarnation. He was the incarnation. He's, his present bodily form, his human body and reasonable soul, was an essential part of the work of redemption because the Father had sent him to do the work of salvation. But that wasn't always the case. He had a life with the Father before he came into the world. Um, Jesus had an awareness of his pre-existence as the Son of God when he had no human form and when he had no human nature. We don't often think of that. But Jesus didn't always have a human body. Jesus didn't always have a human nature. The fact that there isn't one heresy which says that he always had a human but that's a heresy. Jesus became flesh, he always flesh. In the night before the cross, Jesus speaks of his life before he came into this world. John 16, verse 28, he says, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. You see, Jesus, Jesus um, has this sense of a, of, a, of a time before which he is going to return to. In the next chapter, um, in the high priest, priestly prayer, in chapter 17, he says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He wants those whom the Father has given him to be with him because he loved him. Verse 24, before the foundation of the world. Jesus is talking about his pre-existent glory. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Through all the, all the suffering of Christ when he was called every name under the sun and despised and rejected by men, he knew he was the God of glory and that he would be glorified again. That he would return to the position of glory which he had before. And we know from Philippians that that came true. We found in fashion as a man, it says, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Just try to go back to the man I met on the street. This man who says, Jesus never claimed to be God. This is a man who's talking openly and explicitly about being, a state of being that he personally had before he came into the world, where he was in the glory of God and that he was going to return to that glory. Now that sounds very much to me as if Jesus is saying that he was God and considered himself to be God. Jesus demonstrated that he saw his um, essential being as being in close union with God the Father. An essential unity with God. Jesus was forever getting into hot, hot water with the religious types over the uh, issue of the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus considered that the Sabbath was being, the way it was being practiced, was putting the cart before the horse. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that's quite a good rule of thumb. If the way you're using the Sabbath is a, a slavish thing, then ditch it. Because that is not the way to use the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for you. To be a help to you, to be a rest for you. 
if you turn it into something slavish like the Pharisees were doing, then it's not any good for you at all. But on one occasion, Jesus defends his healing of a man on the Sabbath day. And he affirms this. He defends this by referring to his union with the Father. First, he says, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. He says, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son. Likewise, Jesus is basically saying to these Jews, You are wrong to accuse me of wrongdoing, but it's only in union with the Father, by the example of the Father, that I do anything. As I say, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. They don't even take any notice of their own Bible, the New World Translation. The Jehovah's Witnesses used to use the King James Version, and then in the 1950s they swapped to the New World Translation. But this is John chapter 5, verse 18, in the New World Translation. And that's not too bad. It says this, it says, This is why the Jews began seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So the Jehovah's Witness don't even take any notice of their own translation here. Because their own translation is saying that Jesus was making himself equal to God. Jews, of course, certainly thought that Jesus was claiming to be God because they say, um, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Well, that's pretty clear evidence, isn't it? That Jesus was claiming to be God. The Jews were saying, we don't mind your miracles, we don't mind your good works. We're studying you because you have made yourself equal to God. And the Jews were right. Jesus did claim to be God. He saw himself as God. Now we have to get this right coming to an end. We have to, get, we have to understand this. This is not talking about a holy man spending so much time in prayer and um, in fasting and on top of a mountain that they get so close to God mystically that there's some kind of union develops between them and God. It's not some kind of religious bond. This is more than that. This is about existence. It's about identity. In his being, Christ and the Father are one. Same is true of the Holy Spirit, of course, which we learn elsewhere in Scripture. One God in three persons. And that's why Jesus can say, without taking a breath, as it were, I am the Father, O one. The Father is in me, and I am in him. If he had known me, he should have known my Father also. For henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. You see, Jesus claimed to be God. He saw himself as God because he saw himself as one with God. And in that case, is a assignment, but it's this unity between God and the Son that Jesus says is the foundation of all evangelism. He says that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me. This is him praying to God. That they, that's the world, also may be one in us. Or that the church, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. In other words, the world will come to believe the gospel. Through the unity that is seen among believers in Jesus Christ. We're miles from that today, aren't we? 
even, even amongst churches of a similar type, were hopeless, hopelessly divided. Dividing over side issues, dividing over forms of baptism and what have you. It's, it's a disgrace, really. Because Jesus said that it was through the unity and love of the disciples that the world would believe that thou hast sent me. And then brief, briefly as we come to an end, Jesus has this sense that he's been sent on a mission by the Father. He had this um, self-consciousness that he had come down from heaven. That's what he said to Nicodemus, wasn't it? Um, that he had come down from heaven. No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Jesus explains that he's, he's, one, he's as one who has come down from heaven to earth for a particular purpose. John 6.38, For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me came forth from the Father and come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. You see, he come to fulfill a mission. Jesus was the Son of God. Co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. He is the Son of God. And if you want to know God, if you want to have a relationship with God, then you have to look at Jesus. You have to come to Jesus because we wouldn't know what God was like without Jesus. We get some sense from the Old Testament. But the character of Jesus is the character of God. To know what God is like, we have to look at Jesus. Jesus is what is, what God is like. The character of Jesus is the character of God. Jesus is holy, God is holy. Jesus loves righteousness and hates iniquity. Jehovah demands absolute perfection and Jesus does. They're one. One God. God rebukes sinners, Jesus rebukes sinners. And said, go and sin no more. Jesus warned of eternal fire. Jehovah warned of irreparable punishment for those who refuse to leave their sin. God is merciful to sinners and loves his people. And Jesus loves sinners and came to seek and to save that which was lost. God is merciful and meek and gracious and loving and compassionate and patient. And Jesus shows us what God is like up front and personal to life. And Jesus came for one main purpose, to give his life for sinners and to preserve them. He came to lay down his life. He came to reveal God and to give his life for sinners. And if Jesus was not truly divine, if he was not God, then our salvation is of no worth whatsoever. Because Jesus is God, he had the power and authority to forgive sins. His death is of infinite value. This is where the Jehovah's Witnesses go wrong. Because for them, Jesus can only make a contribution to their salvation. That's the same with all other religions. But that's not enough. We need full deliverance from our sin. We need full deliverance from the righteous judgment of God. We need to be restored to his favour. And we can't satisfy God. 
We can't do it. We can't even do any of it. We can't top up the credit through good works, what the JWs believe. Because every day we go more and more into debt with God. Our debit balance increases. And that's why understanding who Jesus is is so essential. Because no ordinary man, no angel, no creative being of any kind can bring deliverance for us. No mere man can still the seas and the storms and the waves of God's wrath against us. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him that sent me. Dear friends, no, no one could sustain the burden of God's wrath against sin. He was just a mere creature, a mere man. Not even, not even an archangel could have borne it. Our Saviour had to be both human and divine. And if we get Jesus wrong, we, get, we miss salvation. Why did he have to be God and man? Well, this, this is a, to me, this is the best catechism that was around. It's easy to understand. The Heidelberg Catechism. And it gives the answer to those questions. Question 16. Why must Jesus be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should likewise make satisfaction for us. And one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Do you get that? Question 17. Why must he in one person be also very God? Why must Jesus be God, in other words? That he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and, and restore us, restore to us righteousness and life. Jesus had to be a man. He had to be God for those reasons. Jesus, and only Jesus, has the power to save and to keep you and I. The salvation in no one else. Because he's divine, he has the power, because he's human, he's able to represent us, a guilty human race. Apostle, the writer to the Hebrews says in verse 7, chapter 7, verse 25, and I'm going to end with these words, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them may you come today to this one and be saved and receive for yourself this redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ alone Amen